Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dubbed by The New Yorker as one of America's very best singer-songwriters, Dar Williams has made her career not in stadiums, but touring America's small towns. She's played their venues, composed in their coffee shops, and drunk in their bars. She's seen these communities struggle, but also seen them thrive in the face of post-industrial identity crises. In her new book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Night at a Time, she muses on why some towns flourish while others fail, examining elements from the significance of history and nature to the uniting power of public spaces and food, drawing on her own travels and the work of urban theorists. She offers real solutions to rebuild declining communities. And it's our pleasure to welcome in uh, Dar Williams. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so a very interesting uh, book, a, a lot of lot of good here. Uh, it's just out, I, I think. Um, um, I want to, um, to start with uh, kind of an opening quotation. You, you quote Gary Snyder. He says, find your place on the planet, dig in, and take responsibility from there. So a lot of places you go with that. But I wonder, um, you have an interesting perspective, and I guess that's the genesis of the book, traveling around uh, visiting these towns on a regular basis, a perspective that many don't have. That's true. That's true. I guess that I'm, I'm, I'm the witnesser of the people who dug in. Uh, as opposed to the one who, who digs in, although now I have done that in my community, which has really influenced me. Um, uh, yeah, I've gotten to, and, and not only have I gotten to see how people have dug in, I've gotten to see them sort of in this time-lapse way where I don't get in with the nitty-gritty too much. I just see what they achieve from year to year, sometimes going back to towns, you know, for, for 20 years uh, annually. Um and, uh, and that's a, a really great perspective to have. It gives me an optimism because I get to see, you know, what works after all of that collaboration. Yeah, that's interesting, that, that, that time lapse. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a valuable perspective. If you live in a town, you don't really, you, you know, you're close to it. You're maybe too close. You don't see that time lapse. Uh, uh, so why, why the book? It, it, there's a lot of empathy, I feel, from you for these towns. You, you hope that they're doing well as you visit from year to year. Um, and a lot of these towns have gone through some hard times. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, even at the outset, I felt like I had some perspective to share about this thing that I call positive proximity, which is the, it's everything from, um, you know, ways that we see that people have chosen to live side by side and, and see their, their proximity to one another as a positive force at the end of the day, um, or the way we feel it in the air. You know, some, you, some, I go to town sometimes and I can see that they have clear signs and they say, welcome to our town, we're really glad you're here. Um, and, uh, and they have, you know, well-marked places to walk and to eat and all of those things. And sometimes I just feel it in the air. Sometimes I just feel that that's going on, that, that there's some openness to one another in the town, some, some decision that's been made that people will choose to collaborate with each other. Um, I, I felt that, and I felt like my I had a perspective to share that, that there are ways to build that sense of positive proximity and um, and ways to, to tear away at it, you know, or ways to go with the status quo that tears away at it. And I thought, somebody should write that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I realized I, I was probably in the best position considering that, you know, basically I've been a 
a field worker, you know, I, I don't have a sociology degree, but, you know, I've been doing sort of field work for, for 20 years, kind of watching the way towns put themselves together socially and how that, that ends up translating into how they proceed socially and physically and, and um, in, in pretty profound ways. It's interesting to me that uh, one of the key conversations coming up with this idea of positive proximity was uh, your friends uh, Kate and Hal in Charlottesville, which has some resonance with the, after the events that uh, happened there. Yeah, yeah, and it's an interesting, um, it, it's funny to read that word because sometimes I read the passage about how I was at their house when I really, when it dawned on me that, that I had this experience of towns and cities that was sort of different from the norm of people saying that we're so divided, we're so divided. And Charlottesville was one of the best examples um, because I, I went out um, after a, a concert and um, I went out for, you know, to a, to a bar where people were having dessert and coffee and wine. And um, they were all out at midnight and, and Charlottesville actually has a lot of positive proximity and has a lot of, um, ways of connecting itself to itself through its history and its and its the university has ties to the town, which is not always the case. A lot of towns don't get that equation of of the university and the town, you know, into any kind of optimal relationship. But I saw all these ways that that Charlottesville was kind of coming into itself and and creating kind of a shared prosperity of common space and. I thought maybe it's because people just sit after midnight and talk to each other and just talk and talk and have these conversations in these beautiful places at, in these outdoor cafes, and they say, where do we want to go? And so uh, I always saw Charlottesville as a place to observe how people were growing their positive proximity. And as we've now started to learn what what these awful, uh, you know, so-called supremacists do is they, they will come two places that have stability, because social stability is invisible on, at a certain point. And so, you know, you, you can disrupt it in a very, in a very powerful negative way. And they'll come in and they'll, they'll test that and they'll push into it and they'll fight it. And so um, generally what we saw were, you know, was, was Charlottesville you know, coming back at these, these, uh, at these, mar- you know, these, these, that this terrible pageant, um, and, um, and really succeeding, but it just got, it's, it, I don't know any community that can really, no matter how strong that social fabric, no matter how strong that positive proximity can handle guys coming in with helmets and swastikas. But I felt like the friends of mine who were there and, and talking to them afterwards, uh, were doing their best to show up and model their their shared community feelings and um, sh- show up for each other. And I, and yet now it's still a symbol of something that's been torn, something that's been attacked, something that is recovering. And it did that that march did break everybody's heart. They they knew the people who who were killed and injured. So. Um, yeah, isn't that a, 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 an interesting thing? That the thing that opened up the door for for me is the place that has been the most challenged um, so far. Um, 
but I do think it's something of a testament to the fact that they had that 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 fabric in place, and and that somebody said, let's go to that college town and challenge that thing. It's almost as if they were jealous of of the true uh, collaboration and, and spirit that Charlottesville had. Do you think that this the place that has a strong uh, positive proximity that I'd imagine that maybe more resilience that maybe give you hope that they they will be able to you know recover from this? Yes. Resilience is a, is a wonderful word to describe what I see. It, when you have that kind of um, those kinds of bridges built within your community from parts of you know where old and young, um, all all cultural backgrounds um, and and financial you know points of financial access where where those bridges are in place um, and people are looking out for each other. Um, there is resilience and that's a great, I mean, it's just, it's springy and it's (laughs) durable and yes, they have, it will give you that social fabric will give you resilience and Charlottesville has it. And I hope that they have it in spades, you know, that I, I hope that they really do something as a community to reflect on the fact that they are better and bigger than the event that, that came through their town. I want to read a, a passage from the introduction. This and, and I was right along with you. This is Hal, your your friend, uh, Hal, Kate, and Hal. There right. um, and Hal. So I just read this. Hal loves to pour through Harvard studies and explain them to dinner guests. And you're you're their dinner guest. Uh, and uh, so we're talking about what uh, power of positive proximity. And so um, he says, "What do you think determines relationships we'll have in our towns?" And uh, you say, "Values, no. Politics, no. Again, hobbies, wrong." <laughs> and I was, I was uh, along with you. And then Hal said, "Proximity, that's all." You go on to say you disagreed. You and you, you have a funny uh, line here. You just heard a story of a company that could identify DNA and dog poop, so people could know the genetic fingerprint is. <laughs> so these conflicts that happen, right? Hal's into conflict resolution. So, but he, right. you, you come to agree with him. Proximity, that's the key. Positive proximity. Exactly. And that was such a, you know, because I was like, no, no, you know, our country is all about people getting into wars with people over their tree branches falling into the lawn. You know, it, it, it fell on my lawn, but it was your tree. And, and, and I thought, wait a minute, that's not, that's not the whole story. There, if, if you choose to orient yourself individually or collectively, that way, where you see everything as an opportunity to blame, to distrust, to, to point out incompetence. Um, that's one way to live your life, and, um, and that's one way to, for a town to exist. And what I've come to say to myself and, and to, to other people is, okay, go ahead and have that. You know, get into your car, lock the door, go to the mall, come home. Your whole community is either uh, over the phone or online. And you don't really see your your community as a place into which you can pour any of your identity or, or get any of your identity, and um, and that's fine. But you won't be Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which has a, um, a a Firebird Festival every December, where you know they put out postcards around Thanksgiving that say it's that time of year again. Come on out, bring your sauce, bring your all the community pours out in around November to uh, build this 18-foot-high Phoenix, because it's Phoenixville, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they build it out of wood pallets, and it's huge, and it's very 
I don't know, kind of austere and kind of Game of Thronesy. <laughs> and um, then on on this appointed night, when all the restaurants are open and all the craftspeople are out, they um, recite poetry and they have these dancers, and then the dancers swirl around and they light this this bird up and there's this huge bonfire and people talk about peeling off their clothes from their down jackets down to their t-shirts and then putting their clothes back on as the bird finally collapses and um you know my thought is okay go ahead walk you know go through the world thinking that it's all about not trusting anybody and blaming people and and think thinking the difference is wrong in some way you know or, or something you want to avoid but then you won't have the Firebird Festival, and you won't have everything that they have in Phoenixville, which somebody ran into me in the street and recognized me, you know, from my music career, and she was with her kids, and I said, do you like living here? And they said, oh, we love living here. We love our town. You won't have the Firebird Festival. You won't have kids who love the town. You won't have parents who are proud to live in the town, and you won't have that part of your identity that's you know, wrapped up in meeting people as you saw and hammer and nail and build things together side by side, literally. Um, so basically, I went to towns where I saw this, this, uh, you know, positive, this positive sense of proximity in place, but there are hundreds of them. And of course, in other continents, um, you know, that's sort of the norm, um, that ethos. And so I saw it, I saw it there as well. What do, what do you think it is about, uh, you say, other continents, that's the norm, not so much perhaps uh, here in the U.S.? Uh, is it we, we just embrace the digital? We have, we, we throw up more walls? What What is it, do you think? Um, you know, they certainly, you know, they, they, they fought against each other. The proximity had a, a very negative, you know, uh, impact on World War One and World War Two, and there is one theory that they just decided, you know, that they can't, uh, you know, so there's sort of a, a decision that was made on a broad scale to to collaborate. Um, but but actually, you're, you, the better answer to that is, in my mind, and probably to everybody's mind, is this sense of that pedestrian town and the person who goes to the market every day and with a little cloth bag and picks up their bread and their apples and... Um, and gas being expensive, so local food is just more of the norm by necessity, and things like that. There's, there's a, um, I have a friend from Germany who um, I think is is in Logan, um, who who just says, you sort of think of the collective first, and you find your way into how that that collective identity works for you in terms of the laws working for pedestrians over cars for collective space, for collective, um, you know, for sharing. And um, that's just sort of in the air uh, as well. But that comes from millennia of, of pedestrian towns. We're, we're just getting back to that uh, in the United States. They say that after World War II, things got more grid-like, more car-oriented. But urban planners now and theorists are pulling us back into a pedestrian-oriented town. And I think that people are really feeling comfortable with that. Um, and Europe, I think, is saying, good, yes, that will work for you. <laughs> Get some trains in there. That will work for you. Um, and uh, I think that's really happening. We'll uh, take a break soon when we uh, come back from that. We'll uh, we'll get into some that you say there's uh, three uh, key uh, elements of uh, positive proximity. 
and will uh, spaces, um, identity building uh, projects, and uh, and what you call translation. Uh, before we go to break, uh, there's there's a line. This comes later in the book that uh, really very hopeful for me in in t- today's pol- political polarization. Um, so I just quote this: "This is Dar Williams from book." That guy who calls the mayor a fascist every month or so, that's just Bill. This is talking about a, a town that works, right, a town that has positive proximity. That's just Bill, and you know that because Bill, you know, uh, volunteers, and, and you're, you rub shoulders with Bill. You, you know Bill. You know his eccentricities. And so when he stands up and calls the mayor a fascist every month or so, uh, that's, you know, you, you just roll with that, and he's part of the community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can absorb difference. If you know what you're dealing with, and actually difference can be good because sometimes the most antisocial people, they're antisocial, so they go off to their basements and they learn how to be awesome graphic designers, and they're the ones who make the posters for your annual tomato festival. There's a lot of use for those rough-edged people, and it's good to know that. But but you have to, I guess you have to be with them, right, to, to, to know they're, to know that they they can be worked with and that they're part of the community. You're part of the community with them. Yes, yes. Yeah, you got to have some space and time to figure that out, and and physical proximity is is probably the the, the fastest way you're going to do that. You can learn it online, but it's much better, uh, much more effective. And I think you would agree. You know, a little physical proximity will go a long way. Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a break. We're uh, talking uh, with the singer songwriter uh, Dar Williams um, and her new book, very interesting book, just out. What I found in a thousand towns: A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Night at a Time. You're welcome to join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail dot com, upraxcess at gmail dot com, um, or you can uh, reach us by phone. Toll free number is eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Um, and uh, we'll we'll talk about Moab. Uh, Moab uh, features in the book here in Utah and some mm-hmm. other towns. Give some specific examples. Uh, we're going to go out uh, each break with uh, some music, and uh, so uh, we've selected uh, the babysitters here from the Honesty Room. This is Dar Williams. We'll hear a minute or so of this going out. <laughs> Night was just great, she taught us the sign for peace. Now she's made us some popcorn, we've turned out the lights, and we're watching movies. I don't understand, and she tries to explain how a spaceship is riding through somebody's brain, and there's blood and guts. She's the best one that we've ever had She sits on her hair and she's tall as my dad And she tie-dyed my shirt and she pierced her own ear And it's peace, man, who, yeah, the babysitter's here Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Mountain Arts and Music Festival Saturday, October 7th, offering live music from 10 a.m. to dusk at Huntsville Square, evening music by Chris Oreck and the Laszlos. Details at mountainartsandmusic.com. Biological engineers work in high-tech industries, developing the latest drugs and biotechnologies, but they also look to nature to make natural products. 
Natural products are replacing many of the synthetic ingredients found in everything from food to pharmaceuticals. For example, biological engineers at USU are using bacteria to produce a health-promoting compound found in plants. Resveratrol is found in the skin of red grapes and berries and has cardioprotective and anti-cancer properties. Biological engineers can program a bacteria's genetic machinery to produce resveratrol, turning the microbes into tiny factories that produce compounds for fighting heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering undergraduate and graduate degrees in biological engineering. Information at engineering.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is singer-songwriter Dar Williams. She has a book out, very interesting book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Night at a Time. You're welcome to join the conversation to email upraxcess at gmail.com or you can call us at 800-826-1495. Dar Williams, before we get back into the book, I've been informed that the song we went out with, The Babysitter's Here, has a connection to, to Logan, apparently a, a real person involved there who, who, <laughs> yeah. who now works at USU. My babysitter. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> very good. So <laughs> it, some connections to Logan, that's great. Um, and, and connections to, to Utah. Uh, so Dar Williams, we've been talking about positive proximity, and uh, you say there, there are at least three elements, the three elements you treat in the, in the book, and uh, spaces is, is one of those. And you talk about Moab, Utah, um, as, uh, as have some beautiful natural spaces, which also brings with it a a problem can be a problem uh, tourism. So you have people in the town struggling to, well, in the case of Moab, I guess not struggling. They have uh, formed this identity, uh, but that can be threatened when you have thousands of visitors every year. Millions, yeah. Yeah, millions. And yeah, I should say millions. It was it was an interesting chapter because there were kind of two things going on. On the one on the one hand, it was just talking about how um, Moab, the people that I've met, the Moabites that I've met, um, are are really wonderful at figuring out uh, at, at sharing their space um, with outsiders. <laughs> you know, every time I've gone, everybody. In fact, Dave Mayor Dave Sackerson, um sent me off to Matrimony Springs, which is a spring on the outskirts of town, and he said, it's called Matrimony Springs because once you drink the water that you always want to come back, you're married to Moab. So this sense of come back, we're glad that you like it, we like it here too, is just really strong there. And and it shows in the, there are lots of places to, to hang out and go outside within Moab, and then of course in the in the parks outside, two of the Mighty Five are, are close by. And um, and my general sense of, of outdoor spaces, um, and Moab just has a lot of examples of it, is that 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 generosity, that sense, there's so much common space that people can share. Um, it brings out a certain generosity in us, and and brings out a certain community focus in our imaginations and conversations with one another. And and I even go to the sort of I, I tend away from this in the book, but there's a there's a mystical quality about the fact that it is so beautiful, and that no matter what your how many hundreds of years you've been there, or, or maybe just a decade, there is this underpinning of 
of acknowledging this beauty that also um, creates an invisible web, a golden web, you know, within that town that I sense. And that translates into, you know, a way of living that where the streets are clean and the people look proud and there's sort of a, a way of getting around and, and everything that, that, that is very pleasant, a great example of an American downtown to me. What are some of the elements? You go over some of these. There's a, the, the health clinic and the and a town hall and a, and a beloved mayor. You, you say that's an element, uh, at least for, for Moab. And, and, you know, what I point out, in a way, you know, Moab is so unique because it has such a challenge of people coming through. And yet I feel like they rise to the challenge. They also have to rise to the challenge of the fact that there's oil under the land and development that could be done to, to you know, they could really max out the, the, the building development and still have more people wanting more houses and hotels there because everybody wants to go. So they've really had to deal with these um, big challenges. The, the mayor did something that I think could be instructive for other towns that are becoming tourist towns, and many of them are, which is he puts the town first. He says, yes, we have the, the tourists here, but every, all of our focus is going to be on the, the town the, the, the schools and the spaces, the parks, the library, the, the, even Town Hall is just a really lovely place. So that everybody feels valued as a resident of this. And we're sure that the, the tourists will appreciate our excellent hospital, too. <laughs> and and one of the things I, I, I've seen is that when you have a town with a sense of identity and you are a tourist there, which is what I always am, um, it's, it's, you feel better as a tourist. And you say, hmm, how can I participate in helping the health of this this town, you know, grow? How can I support the independent shops and the beautiful independent bookstore and and its wonderful restaurants and acknowledge to them that I see their identity and I and I'm I want to give them my tourist dollars and my appreciation and my witness and then move on without you know stepping on all their flowers. <laughs> yeah, right, so, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, they they've got that. Um, I, uh, you say something interesting in the, in the book about uh, Moab. You said it, uh, t- talking about tourism, a town must find its uh, axis, an axis of stability. So you come up with the V to R ratio, visitor to um, resident, resident, resident ratio. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the, the VR ratio is, I, we have this in our town. We have people who love to, love to, you know, hate the tourists. And I find that to be, you know, tourists walk through our town speaking different languages. They they are interesting. They they love us. You know, I feel proud of my town, and the downtowns are a certain financial engine. So, um, but I think what would be it would be great if there was some policy understanding of of a VR ratio where you do things that are for the visitors that are the, the, the little fancy bobbly bubbly <laughs> things and the nice parchment journals that they can buy and those kind of beautiful things. And, and then you have something for the residents, like you always have a shop that sells white t-shirts for the tie dye project that is inevitably going to happen. And you didn't know about it till the night before and, you know, and black socks and white socks and, um, you know, white button-down shirts for chorus concerts. Just <laughs> have the shop that sells that. Have the shop that sells rubber bands. And, um, you know, I was in a beautiful town in 
Tennessee, Franklin, that has really found its identity through its history and rebuilt its downtown. Uh, and everyone wants to sit in their cafes, but they don't have a drugstore. And I had a terrible headache, and, and they, I couldn't find an aspirin. That was a, The drugstore was a, a mile out of town. What you want is what Moab has, which I don't know if it's a Rite Aid or a Walgreens, but it's a big drugstore, and they sell socks, and they sell all these other things just to make sure that those those staples are covered. And then you also want to have nice hangouts for the residents that are that they share with the tourists but are really places where they can hang out and kind of find each other so that they know who they are apart from all that traffic coming through or in relation to all the traffic. So um, it's uh, the bookstore, Back of Beyond Books, I point out as sort of a beautiful cornerstone of, of the VR ratio because it's got all the Terry Tempest Williams books. I mean, it's so wonderful, and, and, and they're really alluring. And as a tourist, I'll always want to buy those. And they have trail maps, but it's also a place where people can just hang out and talk to each other. And um, they have a lot of local authors who read there and, and they support local writers. So they do both. And, um, and in that way, they are sort of the, a warm center for the town to, to gather around uh, and still welcome the tourists. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that shout out to Backa Beyond. We, we love Andy Nettles and the folks there. Um, you, yeah. you say about Moab, this, this is significant. Um, it's a town with its own culture and conversations. And you recount, you, you're sitting in a, a cafe, I think, and you're overhearing some guys talking, and, and they know you're overhearing, so they kind of adjust the conversation for you. But they're talking about the, you know, the, the, the latest gossip, but they're also talking about the, I guess, what, Bob or Bill, who lives on the edge of town? Yes, they're, they're talking about Bob, who lives in this trailer, and he's this kind of man of mystery, and he just does his thing, and <laughs> and he, you know, he's sort of like a like a yeti, <laughs> or you know, like a, a a recluse. And so they're just talking about Bob, and then they say that there's a in the news there's a some celebrity breakup, and I don't remember, but but the there's a mistress, you know, there's a married couple, and there's a mistress involved, and she's gone into hiding, and and one of the guys says, "Well, I know where she is." She's out with Bob. (laughs) (laughs) And there was just that. It was just, you know, you want to go to a place where the locals, it was the, I think it was the Moab Diner I was at, and the locals kind of are feeling their local thing. And also, which is also combined with excellent coffee. That's some of the best coffee I've ever had is the Moab Roasting Company. (laughs) So, you know, that that combination of, of being able to sit as an outsider and, and still sense that there's an inside. Um, that's the kind of thing that I, I think is uh, really relevant to um, people understanding that when tourists come through and places that capitalize on their history or their nature or their food will have people coming in from the outside, there's a relationship that you can have with them uh, as opposed to seeing them as a swarm of locusts. And I think that's an important... Um, people who have figured out that... that I call it the hometown pride and the worldly welcome. People who figured out their hometown pride and their worldly welcome are positioned to grow really beautifully into the 21st century, uh, economically and socially, I believe. Mm. You, um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, about Beacon, Beacon, New York. This is, this is your hometown, or you're, you live next door? Or? I, I, I live one town south. One, yeah. one, one town south. 
Um, and, and you say, uh, I guess, the after picture, there's a kind of a before and after. I want to talk a little bit about how, how Beacon became successful, this positive proximity, building their own identity and, uh, and, and thriving as a, as a small town. Um, you say nowadays you have a harder time uh, now uh, sensing who, ha- when you walk the sidewalks, harder time now sensing who's been in Beacon a long time and, and uh, who's just uh, arrived, which is, a, that's a, I guess, a key indicator. Yeah, that's a good indicator, and they are. Um, it's they were they they got this this thing plunked into their town, which was really brought in, I think, as as a gift as well as a as an attraction, which is this uh, a museum called Dia Beacon, and they have huge modern art things. So you can't really have it in the middle of New York City because these are big, you know, ten foot high sculptures and things. So they took an old Nabisco printing. Uh, Bag printing company, a factory, and um, that was empty and gutted, and um, transformed it into this light-filled space that uh, houses these big things. And the other thing that they had in Beacon uh, was uh, was a very uh, larger-than-life presence of Pete Seeger and his followers, and all the people who loved who he was and how he was in the world loved to pull out their banjos too. Um, so Pete Seeger, the singer, lived there, and he was always trying to do little things to build bridges between people in Beacon, but generally Beacon had a lot of boarded-up stores. It has a huge main street that's a combination of two towns that became one, so that's a challenge. And um, it was um, it had some economic struggles uh, across the board, you know, black and white, young and old, and, um, and it wasn't... And so when this... When, when Pete's kind of fun, folky friends were in town doing things. It was like they were they were sort of a fringe. And Dia Beacon was a fringe. They were beautiful fringes. And some artists came in, but the artists were just doing their artist thing in their studios, kind of an orbit of New York City. When the cafes, the, the very modest cafes, not the fancy uh, cafes started to happen and people came in and started connecting dots. This rabbi came in and started having interfaith conversations about Genesis, about Exodus. Um, when spaces started to pop up and be used in a way to help acquaintances meet acquaintances, not just let's all rush out into the public square and start hugging each other because <laughs> even though we're all really different from each other, when people started to really just find their way into these gentle spaces that pulled them into conversation with one another one way or another, friendly staffs at, at uh, cafes, for instance, you know, who were hooked into the community news. Um, that's when they started to quietly say, what, what's going on here? And what, how are we going to integrate all of this? People have been here for decades. People have come here two months ago. What, what is our thing? And now they call themselves Beaconites, just like they call themselves Moabites. And they didn't call themselves Beaconites. And, and they don't consider themselves to be exiles from New York City anymore. They are Beaconites. And, they, and so I feel like all of those spaces kind of help to create and sort of melt the edges. And, um, and I'm always a big encourager of, of, you know, cafes and spaces and um, using your library as a social space and using church lobbies and, you know, church spaces as not just church spaces, places of worship, you know, using those spaces that are underutilized throughout the, the week as 
creative places to have different kinds of events so that different people meet different people. And that's what happened in Moab and Moab in Beacon. And, and now it's just full throttle. And um, they're facing issues, obviously, of gentrification, um, which, you know, I, I also want to point out, my book mentions things like Chardonnay and basil mm-hmm. and uh, cafes and museums. So people, I think, automatically say, uh-oh, she's talking, she's inviting gentrification. She's, she's embracing this thing we call gentrification. And um, I think we should throw out the word gentrification, actually, and just say displacement, because that's really what we're afraid of with gentrification. Somebody comes in and displaces the people who created the beauty of the community and and replaces them with people who who don't have that. Um, and 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 it's, it's kind of soulless. And um, I was writing stories about towns that improved themselves from drug dealers on every corner, literally, to the Firebird Festival, to, you know, the, from somebody looking out the window of his office in Moab and seeing deer and, and birds crossing Main Street because the town's emptied out after the uranium mine went down to what Moab is today. So I think improvement is a really important thing to notice and to encourage, and that's what I have done in my book. Then there is that magic moment when you've improved to a place and somebody will come in and say, I can capitalize on that. <laughs> I, can, I can profit from that. And that's an important moment for a town to say, let's be proud of ourselves and recognize what we've done so that we can keep what ours as ours and we can keep the affordability, the livability, the vision, the coolness, the creativity and keep that. And that's what American towns are struggling with now. How do you keep that character that you work so hard to develop and build um, and not have it just be um, uh, sort of sucked out? by um, by overdevelopment and um, a taking over of the downtown into something that's kind of precious and um, not about the residents. So I, I recognize that challenge. Uh, as, as we're talking, it's irresistible for me to, to, to want to, uh, to, to um, scale up these ideas. We've had some success stories here in towns. You've been talking about those. It's very helpful and hopeful. Um, and, and, you know, when you had that image... Uh, you know, a comic image that we we all rush into the town square and hug each other. Um, boy, that's what we need as a nation. <laughs> and it, but you can't yeah. you can't force it. Are are there are there ideas here that we could scale up? Uh, you know, sort of nationwide. Well, there's been I've heard many references to the fact that when um, when freshmen, um, congressmen, and senators come to Washington D.C. Um, there used to be more uh, bipartisan barbecues and stuff, and um, there are not as many. And so it's been a, a negative, feed, a, a, a vicious cycle of there's a sense of divis- divisiveness, so you don't really want to have that barbecue. You don't have the barbecue, so you don't meet people, and then there's more divisiveness. And so there has been some suggestion that just that small town of people, the the 538 <laughs> Uh, politicians in Washington that they find opportunities in spaces, projects, and um, translation outside of government to meet one another, see with one another, and relate to one another, um, and then go into the buildings and deliberate over these these projects and ideas for our nation. That has been 
strongly suggested and, and um, pushed by people, and I hope that that could happen. But um, I will say, you know, this this category, this this part of the book that I call translation. Translation is that hometown pride, worldly welcome. How translation is how do we find a role for ourselves as individuals, and how do we create roles for other people to feel access to to the town? And Beth Macy, who wrote Factory Man, um, has a beautiful quote about how t- communities thrive when there is a diverse range of equal voices. So one of the, the, I don't know how to scale it up pragmatically, except to say I would encourage people to pay attention to the spaces that allow conversations to happen and the kinds of parks and the kinds of outdoor spaces that allow conversations to happen and to encourage projects that dig towns into their identity, their food identity, their nature or their historical identity. I would encourage that sort of as a policy. But um, there's just that ethos of translation uh, of, of access and welcome that we can foster. And, and the very mo- most important thing I can say as someone who has done this research is that this narrative of division in and of itself is um, a, self, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, just want, you don't want to say, we are divided. You can say, wow, we're really diverse. We're really different from each other. But you want that. I mean, on any project, you want people with a lot of different skill sets, right? So maybe the person with a different religious view and the different political view also has an inherent perspective that will help your projects and help you in your in your your own identity. So getting rid of that that we are so divided narrative that, that's very much it. That's really often tweeted out of. The, 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 the White House these days, and then an encouragement for us to look at examples of how divided we are, you know, so that when people squawk and say, we don't like this, they say, ah, that's division. No, that's democracy. So, so that's, a, that's a, a destructive narrative, I believe. And the other destructive narrative is, look at this incompetence. Look at these idiots. Look at these people who can't do this. It's common sense. Why can't they do it? They must be morons. They must be corrupt. They must just like to complicate things. That narrative is also um, destructive to building positive proximity. Positive proximity means that some things happen slowly, some things happen fast. You live in a town. Things happen. <laughs> you participate. You feel welcome to do it. And, you and, and you know, it's, they say there's something that everybody's going to work on or that, uh, you're all, that you're already there and you're proud of. Um, Actually, one of the great things I saw in Beacon, the mayor was there, and there's a new building in town. And I thought everyone's going to rag on the mayor for the new building because it's bigger than people expected. So I thought they were going to dump on him. And he's good for it. He's he's a strong guy. But nobody did. Everybody talked about it as a Beacon issue that everybody had to deal with. And at the end of the night, the mayor asked a question because we were talking about downtowns and owning, maybe sometimes it would be good for store owners to own their stores so that they can't just get taken over by the, the more lucrative touristy shop. And the mayor raised his hand and he said, how do we do that? I don't want to spend millions of dollars buying these buildings and then passing on the taxpayer expense. How are we going to do that? And I thought, how wonderful to have a transparent mayor who says, my palms are open. I'm looking for solutions. 
let's we really need to find them and they're not going to all come from me and then a town that said we're not going to dump on the mayor we are the solution people so that ethos as opposed to pointing at people and calling them incompetent is is a really healthy way to grow a country i think as well as as a town we're talking with uh, singer-songwriter Dar Williams. Her new book, very interesting book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities. One coffee shop, dog run, and open mic night at a time. We take another break. When we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, Phoenix. Uh, Phoenixville is what it's called. Um, yeah. And building a sense of identity. You've already talked about the uh, the Phoenix Festival where they burn a big, uh, a big Phoenix. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and some other examples. And you're welcome to join the conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. We're going out from each of the segments with, uh, with a song of Dar Williams. And uh, this one is As Cool As I Am from uh, Mortal City. This is Dar Williams. I didn't like the love, I liked the climbing She was my sister then, was running out of time And one minus And I was afraid, like you are When you're too young, to know the diamond And so I watched the way you take your fear And pour the horizon the point, you have a word For every woman you can lay your eyes on Like you own, just because you bought the time And you turn to Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing outdoor access to the National Forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more is available online at explorelogan.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 9th Annual Zion Canyon Music Festival, September 29th and 30th, under the cliffs of Zion National Park. Live continuous music, food booths, and a kid zone. More at ZionCanyonMusicFestival.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment, a brief segment here with uh, Dar Williams. Her new book is What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Night uh, at a Time. Just have a few minutes left. And I wanted to, I was fascinated by this, uh, the transformation of Phoenixville. We've talked a little bit about it before. Um, but uh, I think when you first started encountering the, the town, it was really under this uh, sort of rust belt blight, right? Uh, kind of the, the life sucked out of the, out of the town. The, the key uh, employer uh, downsized to almost nothing. Um, and yeah. now they've had a resurgence. Um, how did they do that? They, uh, the, I think the first thing that happened, there was a critical mass of people you know, who who did recognize something, and they they did something. A lot of the things I point out in in my my book and my writing is, is how people kind of rub two sticks together, and there was smoke, and then there was fire. Sometimes it's really without any governmental anything. Um, but in this case, they went and got uh, they secured a historic district status uh, to protect the buildings um, from being torn down and um, and it protected a few key buildings right off the bat that are 
quite beautiful. And you just think, how could they have thought of tearing them down? But people do. And so um, these buildings, uh, one of them in particular, they started to fill first with a historical, um, the historic society building. Um, and then they were deciding what to do with the rest of the building. And they turned it into an event space, but they kept in some of the old um, steel making the iron something <laughs> machinery. And so people get married and they'll stand in front of the cantilevered, you know, thing <laughs> that's hanging out or they'll, they'll stand in front of a big, uh, you know, duct um, that, that was left there. So it kept the regional identity, even though people get married there and have dance concerts and, and conventions there. That was a really smart thing. And then also they, um, uh, one of the buildings that got preserved and, and um, on its own terms was an old vaudeville theater that had opened and closed a number of times over the year, but the, the city sold it to a nonprofit group in uh, in 2000 for you know a dollar, and the nonprofit group just opened up its ears to the community and said, "What do you want? What do you want?" And one of the things that came up was um, that they had a copy of the film The Blob that had been given to them because The Blob was filmed by a, a Christian community that made sci-fi films together hmm. uh, and made lots of B sci-fi films together uh, in Phoenixville and, and neighboring towns. They got a copy, the, the, the Phoenixville Colonial Theater got a copy of The Blob and decided to um, screen it one summer uh, as, a, as the anniversary of Steve McQueen's birthday, which is he was in the movie. And um, it was a huge success. They called it Blob Fest. And they had they made tin hats, you know, because tin tinfoil hats are supposed <laughs> to keep the the aliens from getting into your brain. And they had a tinfoil hat parade, and they had this screening. And um, now Blobfest, you know, ten years later, um, when I was playing there, people said, "Oh, you've got to come to Blobfest." They have a variety show on Fridays where with a spinning wheel and a band and women walking around with bouffant wigs and, and taffeta dresses. And at nine o'clock, they have this ritual running out of the theater, uh, the colonial theater, because that echoes the, um, in the film, the blob comes through the ventilation ducts and, and everybody has to flee the theater in the, in the movie, <laughs> which is the colonial theater. Um, and so people reenact this fleeing from the blob. That happens at 9 o'clock, and everyone loves that moment. The next day they talk about sci-fi films and have serious sci-fi lecturers and professors come in, and they show sci-fi films. And then on Sunday they just kind of show the blob a few times for people who just want to see it without all of the hubbub. And <laughs> it's a huge thing in all the stores. When I was there, it was Japanese Japanese um, sci-fi week and so they had Godzilla and Mafia, Mafia or whatever and all of the windows and everyone was welcoming the, the crowds to Blobfest and um, that's so the, you know there's just all these pictures that you can paint of what they have now that it was created out of this sort of citizen driven interest in history in everything that Phoenixville was all they did is go back and pull out what Phoenixville was and and uh, there are people who just honor that in the way that they're present on Main Street. There's another guy who runs an old-fashioned barbershop. He's an African-American, and he staked out 
the strong, you know, the, the most trafficked corner of town, and all the kids hang out outside his um, his barbershop, and inside they hang out too. So I went in to interview this guy. You know, six heads looked up towards Steve, the, <laughs> the, the barbershop owner, to see what this guy thought of this woman walking in with her microphone. So his he had uh, his mother had grown up in Phoenixville, and he'd heard that it was a, a good place to live and raise children whether you're black or white or Jewish or Catholic or Irish or, you know, that, that here there was a way to have, uh, you know, a good life. And he is, a, a, he is central to, to Phoenixville. So there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of ways of seeing everybody's story play out on, uh, on the main street of downtown because it came up through its people and it's still about its people. Mm. We'll um, have to... Uh, so Oh, oh go, go. oh, great. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we're unfortunately out of time. Uh, there's much else oh. in the book. I encourage you to read it. Uh, very important uh, issues uh, talked about here. What I, what I found in a thousand towns. Dar Williams is the author and she's uh, joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we'll go out to, with uh, just a bit of a, another uh, song. This is, uh, I, uh, this is uh, When I Was a Boy. This is Dar Williams. When Peter Pan came to my house, took my hand I said I was a boy, I'm glad he didn't check I learned to fly, I learned to fight I lived a whole life in one night Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.